Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts, in conversation. This podcast has been taken from the Practical News Updates at Beaver Congress 2021. Here, James Crowdtree discusses recent research and developments in equine stud medicine. Our last speaker is James Crabtree. Um, James is reproductive specialist and director at Equine Reproduction Services in the UK and will talk to us about the developments in stud medicine in the last year. Thank you, Bruce. Okay, so given we didn't have a beaver in 2020 and given that you know we've had a difficulty in getting information disseminated, I'm going to take the liberty of going back a few stages. I'm going to pick some stuff that late 2019, 2020, that leads into some of the significant papers of 2020 and 2021. Declarations. Um, The only real declaration I have to make, and I do have to apologize for, I'm the co-author or author on two of the papers that are going to be presented, but that's not my indulgence. It's because it's relatively important work by others, which I just helped with. I'd like to present some information on pathophysiology diagnosis and the treatment of bacterial placentitis. We're going to talk about the biomarkers for placentitis um, and some of the potential therapies focusing in on furacoxib. We're going to talk a little bit about pregnancy failure and some of the updates that we've had in this area, uh, the causes and characteristics of the early pregnancy failure, as well as some of the incidences of pregnancy failure after day 70. There's a little bit of information new and developed since 2018 on stallion semen preservation, embryo vitrification, and a little bit on the potential for early season cyclic activity and superovulation in mares, and then, contrary to that, a little bit on estrus suppression. In order to set the scene for this, in 2018 at the International Symposium of Equine Reproduction, we were exposed to lots of heat maps, gene expressions, and Essentially, equine reproductive research went on a fishing exercise, but this fishing exercise wasn't a delicate sat next to the ocean with a rod. It was more like a dredging exercise. They threw out their net um, and looked for all of the gene expression changes in certain conditions and got loads and loads of information back what genes were upregulated, what genes were downregulated, but if there were significant differences away from the normal, they used those genes to target what those genes may control and therefore what we may be able to look at and apply a clinical application to. Some of that work has developed um, into a paper published in 2021 by Carly Fedorka and the team at uh, Kentucky. And this leads on from two papers that Carly produced in 2019 and 2020. So this is looking at the equine and fetal maternal immune response to an ascending placentitis. So what we have here, we have an inoculation of bacteria through the cervix um, and then looking at the inflammatory cascade that occurs in an infectious placentitis case. So ascending infection triggers inflammatory cytokines. And I've tried to color code these throughout the presentation and through the other papers as well, that the inflammatory cytokines are uh, colored pink and the anti-inflammatory or immune-modulating cytokines are in blue. So ascending infection triggers all of these inflammatory cytokines. The fetus then responds with its own inflammatory cytokines, but also anti-inflammatory cytokines. And then one really important cytokine is IL-6, because it's, it's demonstrated that it's upregulated following induction of infection, 
and that's then found in the amniotic, allanteric, and also in the maternal circulation. That gene was targeted because of some of these heat maps on this fishing exercise, but it's also important in, in human medicine and, and the assessment of human fetal health. So then the paper describes the screening process of 702 thoroughbred mares that stood in Kentucky. And of those 702 mares, there were six asanding placentitis cases, six focal mucoid placentitis, which is the nocardiform-style placentitis, and then six idiopathic abortions. And so the, here we have, at the top left, IL-2. And we're showing that the, the dotted line, the red line, are the ascending placentitis cases compared to the black line, which is baseline, which is the control case. And there were significant elevations in, in, in maternal levels of IL-2. There were also significant elevations only at one time point, two weeks prior to uh, birth or abortion in IL-5. IL-6 was consistently elevated in the cases of ascending placentitis, as was IL-10. And then interferon gamma and tuner necrosis factor were also um, elevated as well. But I've just highlighted IL-6 and IL-10 because there's a little bit of a consistent theme developing with those cytokines. The other paper that I'm going to present from Carly and the team at uh, Kentucky is looking at the same data set of mares, looking at steroid hormones and alpha-fetoprotein. Now, the steroid hormones, we're often looking at are estrogens and progestogens. And, you know, it's our go-to. You know, if we've got a pregnant mare and we want to do some endocrinology and take a look, we run those assays. But it's very, very difficult to make any interpretations from them. So what... This group demonstrated in these 702 mares was that in the ascending placentitis cases, they also published in these papers the, the data that I'm showing you here for the nocardiform and the idiopathic abortions, we have a significant elevation in progesterone levels. Now, the challenge with progesterone is, is that it cross-reacts with many different things in its assay, but the other challenge is, is knowing where our individual reference ranges are for our own group of mares using our own laboratory or our external laboratory services. Where is the normal? But we do have a significant elevation in progesterone, um, a reduction which was significant closer towards parturition or abortion for estradiol 17 beta. But interestingly, the ratio of estrogen progesterone was far lower in the ascending placentitis cases barring one time point, which was slightly less significant. And then alpha-fetoprotein is another interesting one. It was detected in maternal circulation, but it's an inflammatory marker um, of fetal inflammation, and it was significantly increased toward the later stages of gestation. So this is where um, pure research looking at gene expression in placentitis cases has led us to screen a population of mares, leading to some significant findings. The goal of this study and all of this ongoing research is to be able to develop a blood sample of a pregnant mare that will help us differentiate between idiopathic abortion, placentitis, and other such syndromes, maybe with a panel of tests which will help us lead to a diagnosis and then give more appropriate management. Moving on from this, we're looking at, I would like to just bring you back to the treatment of placentitis, with, particularly with regard to furacoxib. And this is um, the work from a variety of sources um, headed up by Margot McPherson at the University of Florida. So back in 2018, Margot and the late Steve Giger uh, presented some data about potential therapies for placentitis cases. 
and they looked in pony mares, they were doing all sorts of um, sampling of allantoic and amniotic fluid from these mares. And then later, we asked Margot to present some of her data at, at our last beaver, and Margot went through the um, agents that had been investigated for the treatment of placentitis to try and see if we could demonstrate whether they were present in allantoic and amniotic fluids. If we're giving a, a therapy to reduce inflammation or, or, or infection within a fetus, um, then we need to know that those compounds can get through to the amniotic or allantoic fluid. So there was a summary of data there, um, and it was interesting that they couldn't detect flunix in megalamine um, in allantoic or amniotic fluids. Now, there could be a, an issue with particle size um, and whether or not the, the experiment allowed for the size of the flunix in particles. Um, so there's still a little, probably rather than a cross, there's probably a question mark over that one. There has also been some information on enrofloxacin uh, published by um, Igor Caniso and Robin Ellerbrock, which is interesting if anybody wants to have a look at that, demonstrating that it, it does penetrate um, fetal fluids, but there was no evidence in that study that there was any cartilage damage to the fetuses. Okay, it's not a necessarily a real-world study, but it is some information there. Margot and the team then went and developed um, looking at ferrocoxib as an anti-inflammatory. We know ferrocoxib in the UK is not licensed for horses. It is uh, licensed for dogs under the trade name Previcox. But Margot and her team demonstrated that it did affect allantoic um, fluid levels and amniotic fluid levels of, of some of these interleukins. The team then went on and presented in late 2019 at um, the AAEP meeting um, a, a clinical study, um, a clinical experiment, should I say, looking at um, infectious placentitis where they inoculated mares with strepequi. Um, those mares were treated with ferrocoxib, TMPS, and altrenogest. Um, and the, the top line, the pink line, are the ferrocoxib treated mares, and the little marks are where those mares ended their pregnancy and if there was a uh, death, we have a drop. So the control mares, one mare aborted at this stage, uh, a dead which a foal which perished, then a mare at this stage, this stage, and so on. And all of the foals that were from the control group did perish, whereas all of the foals from the ferrocoxib and that treatment group, ferrocoxib, TMPS, and altrenogest did survive. But it, it, it was stressed from this paper that you know these foals did need significant help. They were high-risk septic foals when they were born. So the data that's been recently presented, looking back at these interleukins again, we have um, the solid line is the ferrocoxib-treated mares, whereas the dotted line um, with the diamonds is the infected mares. And if I take the first graph for interleukin 1-beta at the top, we have ferrocoxib mares had the lowest levels of interleukin 1-beta, whereas the infected mares had the highest levels. And that, that was a general theme. Um, it was reducing the anti-inflammatory or the immune-modulating interleukins as much as it was the inflammatory interleukins, but also prostaglandin F2-alpha and PGE2 were significantly reduced in the ferrocoxib-treated mares. So it's a, it's a significant therapy. We know that it has some clinical effect, and it could be considered in our treatment protocols for infectious placentitis, um, should we feel that necessary. So moving on from that to pregnancy failure, uh, paper 
published in scientific reports from the team at um, the Royal Veterinary College, um, Charlotte Shilton's work, uh, supervised by Amanda de Mestre. And this was looking at the whole genome analysis of, of pregnancy failure to see if we could find any significant um, any significant changes in the in the gene expression of those, but specifically looking at the number of genes. Here's a table which summarizes uh, the findings. And in 12 of the 55 early pregnancy failures, they were found that there were either gene um, chromosome deletions, so the, the, mare, the, the fetuses only had one copy of the cro chromosome uh, representing a monosomy, or they had uh, a triplicate reckon, re um, representing a trisomy of those genes. These are all individual clinical cases. So these are all of the 12 demonstrating the um, gestational age of the mare when the pregnancies failed, the maternal age of the mare, and also uh, breed. So majority were thoroughbreds, but there were some warm bloods. And then the, the, the genes that were, uh, or the chromosomes, should I say, which were either missing or, or duplicated. One of the interesting factors here was that there were some of these gene deletions or, or, or um, duplications were present in young mares as well as old mares, but these represented t almost 22% of the pregnancy failures were due to significant chromosome either deletions or duplications. So these were non-viable pregnancies. And here are some images of the, of the fetuses, and you can see that there's one here um, which should have developed a, a, an embryo proper and or fetus, which didn't, and then some, some significant aberrations in the presentation of the fetuses. So these are all lethal aberrations, if one likes. So what do we take from this? Well, I think we take from this that 20% of early pregnancy failures we could do nothing about. Then um, another member of the team, Ann Kayla, looked at the morphological features associated with some of these early pregnancy failures. And it's interesting here to see that they've, they, they measured the crown rump, rump length of all of these failing pregnancies and compared those to either normal pregnancies that were in their study data set or some reference values. So the reference values here are the um, diamonds and the rest of the mares in the study set are the triangles. The early pregnancy failures here, I've, I've, I've labeled them as pink dots. And essentially what we're saying here, that there's a significant growth retardation in the, in the pregnancies that fail. We've always known that a, a pregnancy that was small for dates or a fetus that wasn't quite up to the dates, we, the size we would expect for the dates of gestation would be a, was a significant thing. Um, but this just backs that up. The paper also described one of the first um, morphological features of a failure of fusion of a neural tube, which was one of the reasons for one of these pregnancies to fail. The same group also looked at later in pregnancy, so another member of the team, Jess Roach, um, looked at some data for the pregnancy causes of loss after 70 days of gestation, looking at a thoroughbred population uh, based in Newmarket. And it's, there's a lot of data on here, but I'm just going to draw you to this end column. So the live foal percentage was, was extremely high, 92.7%. Um, looking at that, the majority of pregnancy failures were within the 70 to 300 days of gestation, which is not a surprise, it was the biggest gap 
We've got some losses between 301 and 315 days of gestation, 0.3%. Um, we also then have some that are lost right at the end um, when we expect the fetus to mature um, and also in the first 24 hours post-parturition. Just moving into this data, we want to look at the total incidence of pregnancy failure is approximately 3.3%, so relatively small in this data set. And then it does just highlight how many umbilical cord-related pathologies that we deal with. 1.5% of these pregnancy failures were due to an umbilical cord-related pathology, whereas only 0.3% were related to an infectious placentitis. I think if we look at this data and looking at it on a, over a population and saying, well, 0.3% of the population are potentially at risk of a placentitis case, I think we probably all acknowledge, any of us that are involved in, in a reasonable number of mares, that we treat far more than 0.3% of mares for placentitis. So I think we probably have to reevaluate our diagnosis and what we're doing sometimes, um, given the differences that we may have within our different populations. Now, this is quite an old paper, and you might say, well, this is, this is 2018, and what relevance does that have today? Well, it's the first publication to describe a protocol for the liquid storage of stallion sperm for seven days. Now, this is from the team um, at Newcastle University in Australia, um, headed up by uh, Richard Aitken, uh, Zamira Gibb, and Eleona Swengen. Things have gone really quiet since this paper was published, so in order to sort of, I can't stress enough the importance of this work really, you know, given 2020 and the difficulties we've had with getting semen into the UK from abroad, delays, deliveries being missed, et cetera, et cetera. And those that have been involved with that, knowing that if your semen arrives a day late, you're not gonna get your mare in foal. This work is crucial. So I contacted Zamira and said, look, where are we with this? There was an update um, on the 27th of February 2019 on the Twitter feed for the Newcastle University to say that sperm extender, the recipe for fertility success. And this hit the mainstream media. Uh, I had clients asking me, are you aware of this semen extender? Where can we get it from? So what they did, they've, they've continued to develop this research. And in the face of coronavirus, it's been particularly difficult. Um, however, what they have demonstrated is that A, they've kept the semen um, what appears to be alive or moving for up to 14 days in an extender at 17 degrees C, but also that keeping semen for a long period of time in a semen extender outside of the horse's body has led to a pregnancy. And that pregnancy was delivered on Christmas night uh, in Tamworth, Australia, under the, under the guise of uh, Jen Clulo. So things have moved on, and um, Zamira gave me permission to tell you that the, the formula for the extender is in Europe. It is being developed with Minitube um, and it's hopefully going to be marketed under the, the trade name SpermSafe E. Um, and the, the challenges they're trying to face at the moment is to, to upscale production of the extender. It's not an easy extender to make um, and they are trying to upscale um, its production. And if it becomes available, I don't think it's gonna be a panacea but I think there's a potential that it could be a game changer for some of our client stallions and, and some of the ways in which we do practice. Um, more information is available from the Newcastle University website, um, but watch this space. I'm sh sure as soon as this product gets close to launch, we're gonna hear about it. Then we're gonna move on to a little bit about embryos. Um, 
a very interesting paper, which is the accumulation of a few years' work from Sandra Wilshire um, and the late Twink Allen, um, the successful vitrification of manually, manually punctured equine embryos. Now, for those that you don't know, um, it's sort of gone a little bit quiet when it comes to the freezing of fresh embryos because of the, the mass production of um, laboratory-produced embryos through the process of OPU and ICSI. However, um, there is still a role for trying to preserve embryos which are collected fresh from the mare so that we can do something with it, either in the case when you get two embryos and you've only got one recipient, or if these techniques can be perfected, then it will be another string to the, the bow of the reproductive clinician. So what are we talking about manually punctured? We, we're really talking about putting them on a micromanipulator and doing all of this under the microscope, puncturing the embryo. Why is puncturing the embryo necessary to vitrify them? Well, the big challenge is teeny tiny little embryos, we can cryopreserve those very easily, whereas the larger embryos, because of the capsule around the embryo, we can't get the cryoprotectants into the embryo. So you can freeze it, but when you thaw it, it's no longer viable. So one of the other important steps in, these, in this process is accurately measuring the embryos so that we know what size it is, and therefore we can research what we're doing, but we can also give guidelines to, to practitioners that are potentially going to do this in the field. So um, what are we looking at here? So top left, we have an embryo which is pre-puncture, which is approximately 420 microns in diameter. And that's, that's prior to manual puncture. B is immediately after manual puncture, and you probably wouldn't realize from those images that it is actually about 10 microns smaller than the first image. Then um, over the next C, D, and E, so through to C, D, and E, we can see that whilst it's in that holding media, it is starting to shrink. Um, looks almost like it's dehydrating as it loses fluid from the, the blastocele cavity in the center and shrinks away from the outer capsule. Then the embryo is put into um, like an equilibrium solution to, uh, to, to prepare it for vitrification, and that is F through to I. So here you can see the embryo shrinks further and it's folding in on itself after it's losing fluid. Then it's put into the freezing solutions, um, frozen, uh, and then in a, through a process in the reverse direction is thawed. So looking at Sandra's results, they, they are extremely interesting. So we always knew that embryos less than 300 microns in diameter didn't require puncturing. But through the process of, uh, and the protocol that's described in the paper, we had an 80% um, seven days pregnancy rate post-transfer. So that is our transfer rate. So 80% of the embryos transferred became pregnant at seven days after transfer in our recipient. And those were, no puncture was performed. So we know that greater than 300 microns um, is, a, is a little bit of a gray area, but it was interesting here that not puncturing the embryos greater than 300 microns resulted in very low transfer rates of 20%. However, when those embryos were punctured, uh, 14 of 17 mares uh, became pregnant, so we had an 82% transfer rate. So puncturing of embryos between 300 and 560 microns in diameter sort of reset the process and said we could, we could get just as good transfer rates as if there were less than 300 microns in diameter. So just put that into some relevance half a day, and definitely one day difference between acquiring an embryo this morning and this afternoon can make a difference between those two sizes. 
So if we're, we've got a, a mare that's for um, embryo freezing, if we collect that embryo and we're just half a day too late when we collect it, then we'll be unsuccessful in freezing without puncture. Yes, it requires advanced procedures and skills. However, um, it does enable us to get pregnancies when we wouldn't usually. Okay, for the embryos greater than 560 microns, some of these were really quite big, puncture, and it didn't really matter what was happening um, with equilibrium solutions, timings, et cetera, et cetera, there were very, very low transfer rates. Then I'd like to move on to superovulation. Now, anybody that's involved or been involved with bovine work knows superovulation is very common. This paper tells us two things. Jan Rosa uh, has been sort of the, the godmother of endocrinology for um, many, many years and based at the University of California, Davis. And this is describing the use of recombinant FSH for not only superovulation and, and embryo recovery, but, but also for the stimulation of seasonally anovulatory mares. So let's have a look at this data. What we're talking about, in, in North America, we're talking midwinter. Um, sorry, that's when we'd be talking about it if it was in um, North America, but this was actually a study performed in South America. Um, so midwinter season, uh, July to August in Argentina, 40 light breed donor mares presenting with follicles less than 10 millimeters in diameter and no CL, so no activity. So these mares were in deep anestrus. And they demonstrated not only that it was an efficacious protocol to stimulate cyclic activity. We just look at the headline figures here. There were seven days of treatment for the mares. Eight out of 10 mares ovulated. They developed six, on average, 6.4 follicles per mare. They ovulated 5.5 follicles per mare. The number of embryos recovered was 2.6 embryos per mare. And of the, the embryo recovery rate per ovulated mare was 88%, so very high. Obviously, our embryo recovery rate is going to be dependent on the semen that we're using. However, the embryo recovery rate per ovulation was pretty good, 47%, and the pregnancy rate of those transferred embryos was, was certainly within acceptable limits, 56%. With this, it would transform reproductive practice. If a mare, we don't have to wait. We could just start on a stimulation protocol and get a cycling for breeding when we wanted it to would have significant impacts on, on housing, on how we manage these mares, how we feed these mares, and worldwide implications. But also for the assisted reproduction sector, it would significantly increase the number of embryos that we could get from mares through a natural cycle without having to perform any invasive or laboratory-based te techniques. On the subject of estrus suppression, um, it was demonstrated, now many of you may know that Oviplant has gone off the market, probably not to return in the near future, um, and some colleagues, um, uh, Caps and the team at Vienna, under the, the uh, supervision of Christine Aurich, looked at Suprelerin, which is the Deslorelin implant for dogs and ferrets, and essentially they demonstrated, using Shetland mares, that s these implants suppressed estrus activity um, for a variable treatment period of time. So if you use one implant, it suppressed the mares for a period of one estrus, whereas if you use two implants, it suppressed the mares for a period of at least two estrus periods. So it demonstrated its usefulness for estrus suppression, but it also demonstrated some of the reasons why it might be um, used in this way. And 
they did a GnRH stimulation test. So they gave the Desirelin implants. 10 days after the implants, they gave them a stimulation dose of GnRH and had a look at their plasma LH concentrations, and they all remained baseline. 45 days later, they repeated that stimulation process, and all of the mares responded to stimulation. So essentially, what this massive overdose of GnRH is doing is it's suppressing the, the hypothalamic pituitary axis, potentially downregulating GnRH receptors, um, and we have a, a significant cause and effect there. And then finally, just a note, two re review papers that are, that are in equine veterinary education. A hot topic potentially is the use of progestins, use of Altranagest in, in pregnant mares um, for a variety of off-label reasons. Um, this paper by Carly Fedorka and Mats Trodson does explore some of those and is a very balanced review on, on the use of progestins in reproductive practice and is a very useful review. And then do excuse this indulgence, but... Um, the vast majority of calls we receive on an annual basis is because of behavioral reasons and how to suppress estrus in mares. Um, and a, a presentation at Beaver a few years ago uh, did stimulate me to, to write this paper to try and be helpful from a clinical standpoint. So if anybody wants to explore that, they can do. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash EVJ.